Well, good morning. Good to be with you guys this morning. If you don't know who I am, if you're new with this, my name is Mark Wells. I'm the worship lead up here, and uh, Mitch has uh, gone out of town this weekend on spring break, and he asked me to step in, which is always great. Um, I, I really enjoy the opportunity to do so and to speak, to spend some time with you guys. Just, I really do love it. Uh, he told me I could preach on whatever I want to, which is great, because I was going to do a Nehemiah 7 like he did a couple weeks ago, but he did such a good job of that. I said, I'll just you know, take something else. So, uh, yeah, I get to just talk about what I'm passionate about, you know, what I'm excited about, what, and, and uh, that's always a great thing to do because um, the stuff I'm going to share with you today is really on my heart. It's a passion for me, and I just uh, love what we're going to talk about this morning uh, a bunch. Let me tell you what my desire is for you today. My desire and my hope for you is that the very first thing you will see this morning is the awfulness of sin. The second thing you'll see is the beauty of Christ. And the last thing you will learn today, hopefully, is how to walk with him, how to walk with our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's my desire for you guys. That's my hope. I got a lot of slides I'm going to be showing because I'm a visual learner, and I like, it keeps me awake, and I like to show things because that's how I learn. So if you want to, if you like what I'm showing up on the screen, hey, this is the 21st century, pull your camera out, take a picture of the slide, right? It's a good way. We don't take notes nowadays. Nobody has a pencil or pad like the old days. Take your camera out, take a picture of it. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, don't be embarrassed to do that. I won't look at you strange if you're doing that. So this morning, we really want to spend some time looking at some things that are very important to me. Let me start by just saying, my wife is a teacher in the Katy District at Taylor High School, and she is a chemistry teacher and has a wonderful, wonderful ministry there above teaching chemistry. She uh, has the opportunity to approach students and meet students as students, not as kids. We're just jamming chemistry down their throat. And she has a fantastic ministry there with the kids, as they come in, they want to be here with her and they want to uh, learn from her because she is such a relationship builder with those students. She teaches a course called PALS. If you know what PALS is, PALS is a uh, high school mentorship program where the, uh, she kind of mentors high school kids, a bunch of high school kids. They go into the elementary school and spend time with elementary kids every day. And that's a really cool thing because she gets to hang out with them and teach them. And so a lot of times we're talking about the things she discusses with the pals. You know, um, she can't really get into spiritual things, but you talk about life issues and the things that are really weighing on her heart. And I asked her, and she says, yeah, we do this. This is a great question to ask uh, students. It's a great question, question to ask anybody that you're involved in. And that question is this. Um, where do you get your values from? Where do you get your value systems from or the values that you hold on to? And just let people talk. And, and let them explain where they get their value system from. Um, and, and the other question is this. Once they explain that, where do you get your values from? The question that comes up is, how do you know you're correct in your value system? How do you know you're accurate in what you believe? And let them discuss that together. And it's a, it's a great conversation between people, uh, especially in a classroom like that of students who get their ideas from everything. Matter of fact, the question I want to ask you today and I want to talk about is where do we get our value system from? I'm going to hope my slides work for us. Here's our first shot at it. Look at that. Amazing. All right. All right. Look, I want to show you this. This is where we get our value system from. First of all, um, a lot of us get our values and, and from experience. It's a very strong pull, uh, a pull on us. It communicates heavily when we experience something. When we go through an experience with a person, good or bad, it has an influence on our value system. And so many times, you know, in our life, we get our values from experiences. We also get it from special revelation or the Bible or, or any kind of spiritual book. We, we learn things and grab hold of things 
and good and bad, and we apply them to our lives or we, we use them in our lives. And you can think of some of the traditions you might have learned when you were young that are just were, were hurtful and painful. But we get those from the Bible sometimes. Uh, another place that's a very strong pull in our lives is the pull of emotions. You kind of go, no, I don't get my, I don't get my uh, values from emotions. But I want to say, yeah, we really, really do get our values from emotions sometimes. When we're hurt or when something happens to us, and we feel a certain way, it, it teaches us something, good and bad. You know, and so we, a lot of times we do get our values from uh, emotions. That's just part of our lives, and it's not all bad, but it's who we are. Another one is religious tradition. It's a very big pull on our lives. We've heard num- numerous sermons from the pulpit. You've been through lots of church services and pastors have spoken to you for years and years, and you get a lot of religious tradition from the way you grow, grew up, and that becomes part of our value system also. Another one is family traditions. We can't uh, hide behind that one. That's a very big pull on our lives because the family of origin has a great impact on how we live our lives and what our value system is. The very last one up there I'll spend some time talking about is the value system of culture. Different cultures have different value systems. When missionaries go overseas, they have training on the culture because it's so different than the American culture. We live in a postmodern society where... um, in postmodernism, all viewpoints, all lifestyles, all beliefs, all behaviors are regarded as equally valid. That's the culture we live in. Matter of fact, that the law of non-contradiction in our culture does not apply anymore. I can make comments that show you that. I mean, this in our culture is acceptable. I could say, I'm not married to my wife. I cannot speak a word of English. I'm absolutely sure that there's no absolute truth, right? Those are all valid in our society because truth for you is truth for you. Truth for me is truth for me. It doesn't really matter anymore. Let me show you a conversation between um, Protagoras and Socrates back in the fourth century. This is really good. Protagoras says this, truth is relative. It's only only a matter of opinion. Socrates says, you mean that truth is merely is mere subjective opinion? Protagonist says this, exactly. What is true for you is true for you, and what is true for me is true for me. Truth is subjective. Socrates, do you really mean that, that my opinion is true by virtue of being my opinion? Protagoras says, indeed, I, I do. Socrates says this, my opinion is, truth is absolute, not opinion, and that you, Mr. Protagoras, are absolutely in error. Since this is my opinion, then you must grant that it is true according to your philosophy. And he says, you know, you're quite right, Socrates. So we live in this postmodern culture, and it's, 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 it's a back to front. You know, everything's kind of mixed up sometimes. And the question I want to ask you this morning is, is how are you doing in the midst of a society like this? Sometimes it just gets me, it just upsets me, you know, and it hurts me and it pushes me down. Life comes at us pretty quick, doesn't it? Um, and when life comes at us really quick, sometimes we ask the question, where is, our, where is our God? Because he's not responding the way we thought he should respond. Because our values and belief systems about God are, have been changed or molded to something that's not his. Romans 1, 21 through 22 says this, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise... They became fools and exchanged the glory of an immortal God for images 
resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Since the beginning of time, um, we've created images and value systems based around false ideas of God. And when life gets difficult, when things become a struggle, when things don't go our way, we become disillusioned about life because we approach this false God that we set up and, and he's not there for us. And we come at, we, we've built a, a false God upon false values and we come and say, do this and he's not there and we get disillusioned. Why? Because we've built our God upon false ideas of what he is, false images of what he is. The issue since the beginning of time has been this, and we're going to talk about this a lot this morning. Man's human reasoning versus God's word. I really want you to think about that. Man's human reasoning versus what God says is true. So this morning we're actually going to be in, we'll cover the whole Old Testament this morning, so bear with me. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 2 to start. If you've got a device or a Bible, start there. And I'm just going to kind of move you through some passages if you want to follow along with me here. So turn to Genesis chapter 2. This is starting in Genesis chapter 2, verse 8. Um, the Lord God planted a garden towards the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground, the Lord God caused uh, to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. You might underline that. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay, so God creates a garden, a beautiful garden, and he creates a, a, a tree in the middle that's pleasing to sight and good for food. He creates everything around there pleasing for sight. But in the middle of the garden, he places a tree and he gives Adam and Eve a command. He says, don't eat from the tree. That's it. Go to Genesis 3, chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 6. So when the woman, watch this, saw that the tree was good for food, she saw again, and that it was a delight to her eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and ate. Then their eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now stop for a second and think about this. The woman... The woman saw that it was good. She evaluated with her own eyes instead of responding to God's revelation, to God's character, what was good. She said, I believe that God is holding something back from me. Matter of fact, she says, I know what's good. God, you don't know what's good. I believe God is not very good because if he was good, he wouldn't hold something back from me. She evaluates with her world system, her human reasoning, she looks at it and says, I know what's best for me, not you, God. And this is going to be the, the, the world system that the creation order will live under since the fall until God restores it back to what he wants it to be. The second thing, it was the, the delight of her eyes. It was the delight. She looked at it and it was the delight. This is going to be the, the eye gate, what we have right here, is going to be the main source of man's evaluation of what is good versus what God said is true. What we see right here is going to determine, is, is what God said is true or is it what I want? Then she took. From this point on, men and women will take their, make their own choices. They will decide, I know what's best for me. God doesn't. 
And I will take, and I will grab for me what is best, and I'm going to do for me what is good. Because you know what? God's holding something back from me. Because we've built our idea on false gods. And now think about this in your own sin struggles. Honestly, um, has not the source been the same as Eve's? We see with our eyes, right? We evaluate for ourselves what is good for me in contrast to what God says is true, and we take it. That's the awfulness of sin. Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, the man and the woman look at God and they evaluate with their own eyes. And they decide what I want is better than what God wants for me. So instead of representing the creator, they choose to listen to creation himself more than the creator. Because he knows what's best for me and I know what's best for me. So they take for themselves and they become naked and ashamed. Now, I love this story because it so applies to our lives in such great ways because we take, and, and because of our sin, think of your past, the guilt and the shame that's been put on us by our sin. Adam and Eve are the same, right? They're, they're naked, they're ashamed. So what do they do? Well, so that they use human reasoning, right? They use their minds, and they say, what we need to do is take the vegetation of the field, cut it out, and make loin coverings for us, and cover our own sin and shame. But you know what? God approaches them in the garden, and he says, that's not going to cut it. It's going to take the innocence of blood to remove the guilt and shame brought on by disobedience and by sin. So get this. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, um, theologians call this the first gospel. It's where God promises that in the midst of our guilt, in the midst of our shame, he will provide a covering. He will provide a substitute for our sin that will pay for all our, our guilt and our shame. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, follow with me, and 16. Really go to this in your Bible. I want to spend some time here. God says this to Adam and Eve. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There's one to come. He's coming, and he's going to take care of your guilt and shame. He's coming. Mitch calls this in his series Anticipation, the anticipation of the Messiah to come. Now, I want you to stop with me on verse 16. I am going to share with you, and I really mean this seriously, the most profound, important, mind-blowing thing that I learned in seminary, and it's one word. It changed my whole view. It it put the whole Bible in perspective. From this point on, I understood the whole Bible in context. My professor, uh, Dr. Bayless, he he taught me so much about this. Me and and another guy that was here, David Klingler, he's now Dr. David Klingler at DTS. And we were sitting in the class, and he said this, and we were blown away. He passed away last week. It was hard on me because he he did so much to challenge my life about theology. And this is where it says this. This is what he taught me. Verse 16, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. I'm sure every one of your translations here say that. And I think everyone, unless you have the King James Version, is in error. And I'll explain why. Women, correct me if I'm wrong. Childbirth 
is not that big. Of, I mean, it's a big deal, right? It, it hurts a little bit, right? Yeah, right? It does. I, I've watched my wife deliver three children. It was, you know, a painful experience. But for some reason, it wasn't that painful because we keep having kids. Do you really think that the pain of childbirth is enough to cover the penalty of sin, enough to penalize a person, just the pain of childbirth? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't ring true. Sin is much greater than that. It's much more powerful than that. And it brought down mankind that the penalty for that is going to be severe. Here's the difference. Verse 16. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. Pain, that same word is this. In, the King James Version translates it correctly, in sorrow. In sorrow you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. In sorrow you will bring forth children. What is he talking about? It makes sense. It, it completely comes to fruition here. Because from this time forward, there will be children that come forth from the woman. Some will follow the seed of the serpent. And there will be great sorrow in your life because you'll watch these, child, these children wander off and not follow Yahweh. And there will be some who follow the seed of the woman. This one to come, this Genesis 3.15 promise, who's going to come forth and save the world. There's going to be some that follow him. But the sorrow comes from watching those who follow the seed of the serpent. But one is coming, Genesis 3.15 says, who will be the seed of the woman, who will follow. And you know what's going to happen? He's going to be crucified. And his blood is going to cover your sin. So I was speaking to Dr. Klingler two weeks ago. I was talking about this whole subject because... Uh, it's, just, it's just amazing. And he said, Dr. Bayless came to him and said, I found it. I, I found the perfect illustration for what we're talking about here. And this is a Michelangelo statue. And he said, that's it. That's it. Mary holding Jesus, the crucified Jesus on her lap. The sorrow that comes forth from the, from the awfulness of sin that's going to take the son and crucify him for our behalf. And Mary grieving over her son's loss. I thought that's a beautiful example of this word here. And if you have ever had a chance to study it just a little more, and if you have a Bible and you still do that and write in it, change that word to sorrow. To show Adam, to show Adam and Eve an illustration of what he's going to do, get this. He says, no, the, the vegetation of the field, the work of your hands is not going to work. What I'm going to do for you is I'm going to take an animal. And I'm going to crucify an innocent animal. I'm going to take that skin, and that skin is going to cover you, your sin and your shame. That is the gospel. Innocence of an animal to cover your shame. Innocent blood, the blood of our, our Savior Jesus Christ to cover our sin and our shame. Now, I'm going to blow you away on this next slide. I don't mean to do that, but I want to show you the whole Old Testament in one picture. Okay? Get your cameras ready. This is awesome. All right? So what we have in the Old Testament is this. This is the Bible. This is Old Testament history. And what do I mean by that? The obedient seed of the woman is going to come forth. So all of Scripture, like I said, Mitch would use the word anticipation in his clarifying the Bible series. There's an anticipation of the coming Messiah, this upslope here, right? And we're going to see that the Scriptures are going to look at all these people 
And they're going to decide, is the, they're going to look at him and evaluate, is this the one to come? Is this the one who is the Messiah? That's what all the Old Testament's doing. It's looking at these people and it's saying, are these characters the ones to come? The one that Genesis 3.15 promised. Abraham does great. He's doing well. But he sleeps with Hagar in Genesis chapter 16. Moses, for example, a great leader, he delivers his people. What a great example of the Messiah to come. What happens in Numbers 20? He strikes the rock instead of speaking to it. These aren't big sins, but they're saying, the Scripture's evaluating these guys and saying, this is not him. This is not the Messiah. David comes along. He's the crescendo of the Old Testament. He comes forth, and the Scripture highlights him and elevates him, and everybody looks at him and goes, this might be the one. He, he defeats uh, Goliath. His armies are, are substantial and they do wonderful things. And he takes the promised land. He does all these great things. And then what happens? He's supposed to be out to battle. And he looks over and he sees Bathsheba. He sees with his eyes. He evaluates, that is good for me. Human reasoning, right? That is good for me. I know what's best for me. And he takes Bathsheba. And he murders innocent blood in Uriah. Example after example comes forth through here. The prophets calling Israel back to repentance, back to a covenant relationship. Yet they refuse. David's not the Messiah. So in Genesis chapter 4, right after this, watch this really close. In Genesis chapter 3, when it ends, Cain is born. Cain is supposed to be the, the man-child. She, Adam, Eve thinks, is this the one? The promise, right? And in Genesis chapter 4, Yahweh asks for an offering of worship from his creation. That they will remember the sacrifice back in the garden. The, the fig leaves that covered shame. That they will remember that. That's the offering he's looking for, right? Cain uses human reasoning, and decides this. He says, you know what? I'm going to take from the fruit of the ground. I'm going to take the vegetation and the fruit of the ground of my labor, and I'm going to bring it to Yahweh. And then Abel, whose name literally means breath or vanity, remembers the actions of Yahweh and responds by providing a blood sacrifice for his flock. He remembers. He remembers what God did for Adam and Eve. And then Scripture says, And the Lord paid attention to Abel's offering and did not regard or desire Cain's offering. You know, um, Cain became angry that his work was, for God was not enough. And, and Scripture says, His face fell. It just kind of went like that, you know. Now, get this. I, I, oftentimes when I read this, I thought God was yelling at Cain. Cain, dad, gummit, get your life straight. Get your, don't you understand? And you're an idiot. You're a moron. Get your life. Abel did the right thing. You just can't get it. I don't, I don't think it's that way at all. In Scripture, after his face has fallen, his word came to Cain. He said, hey, bro. Well, that's not in there. I just kind of made that up. If you do, that's how I think. I mean, you know. Uh, hey, bro, if you do well, will not your face be lifted up? And if you do not do well, remembering my word, sin is crouching down at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Hey, man, it's all right. 
the wrong offering, right? Next time, think about it. Think about the promise that I gave to you. Don't use your human reasoning. Use what I gave to you, my word to you. It's okay. Because next time, your face will be lifted up. Remember what Jesus said in John 10.10, 10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Cain uses human reasoning, and once again, he decides that the solution for his frustration is not to listen or submit to Yahweh, not to rethink, not to repent, not to do anything. So what he decides to do is kill Abel. Let's get rid of the problem. And he kills Abel. Old Testament searching for this Messiah. 400 years of nothing, of silence. You know why the scripture says, in my opinion, that um, John the Baptist was the greatest of all the prophets? It's because of this. The visible image of the invisible God comes to the scene in Jesus Christ. And John the Baptist looks at him and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who can't take away the sins of the world. He gets to see it. Of all the prophets of all time, he gets to look down and say, There he is. The Messiah, the Genesis 3.15 promise, he is right here before you. The Son of God, the visible expression of the invisible God. Then God speaks these words as Jesus is baptized. He says this, this is my Son, whom I am well pleased. Have you ever thought, why would God need to say that? I mean, doesn't Jesus know who he is and, you know... um, Why why does he need that? And I'll tell you why. Because Jesus, not only being 100% God, this is hard for us to grab sometimes, that's easy. He was 100% human. And shortly, his human reasoning was going to come in and tempt him. It was to the point, he was going to be ushered into the desert, and his human reasoning was going to fight against what God says is true, and he had to make decisions. And when God comes before him and says, you are my son. I am well pleased. He needs that because creation himself, Satan in the form of creation, is going to take him out in the desert. And what we're going to look at that is the temptations of Jesus briefly here. Watch this. Matthew 4, 1 through 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter, creation, came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these things, stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, how about you? you talk about church tradition and growing up in weird things. When I heard this story when I was little, um, you, you watch the movies, and this is what you're used to seeing. Jesus in the desert, kind of Robert Redford looking kind of guy. He's walking along. He's doing great. You know, he just... Well, one time I asked Doc Sheraton, I said, what does a guy look like after 40 days of not eating and not uh, having food? He said his body would be broken. It'd be a mess. You'd see skin and bones. And he'd barely be able to move. But this is the picture that we get thrown at us, right? He is suffering in the desert. Here's Satan's temptation. So you think that God loves you, right? If he did, why would he allow you to starve to death? Take care of yourself because God does not love you. If he was a good, loving father, he would provide for you. Look, you, Jesus, know what is best for you. 
Feed yourself. Feed yourself. Human reasoning. It makes sense. Jesus responds, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You know, um, that, that issue, every word comes from the mouth of God. Of course, that means all of Scripture. I think it means more than that. Think about this. What did he just hear in his, baptize, in his baptism? Every word that comes from the mouth of God. What did he just hear? You are my son. I'm proud of you. I'm going to take care of you. Instead of using human reasoning, he trusts what God told him is true. A little sidebar here. I, <clears throat> I got three kids. Or they're getting older or I'm getting younger. I don't know what's going on. It's just a weird time in life. It's like the Matrix. It's just life is weird. Um, as they get older and grow older, every time I see them, not every time I see them, but when I get with them, I always want to say a couple things to them. And young parents, write this down. When I see my kids, sometime during the time I see them or before they're leaving, I want to say this. Um, you know, Jared, Becca, Kelsey, I, I love you. And I am so glad that you're my son or you're my daughter. I'm proud of you. What would that do for you if your parents said that to you all the time? I don't care if it sounds canned. Sometimes they probably go, oh, here it comes again, you know. <clears throat> you know, I, I love you. And I'm so glad that you're my son and daughter. And I'm proud of you. I think that's what Jesus needed to hear, right? In his humanity, I love you and I'm going to take you through this. So Jesus' response, you know what, Satan? I am hungry, but my father is good. And he loves me. He told me so. And he knows that I need food. And I'm going to believe what he said is true and lean on his words instead of my own provision and my own human reasoning of what I think is best for me. I'm going to trust God. My question to you is this. Um, do you really believe the Father is good and knows what is best for you and will keep his promises for you? If we did, I think then you and I would live our lives differently, wouldn't we? There's two deals. Uh, I always go back to this, but here's the two deals. I don't believe it. I come to church because it makes me feel better, or I lost a bet with my friend, or my spouse just makes me come. Or what God says is actually true, and God pursued me, and he saved me, and he lives in me, and forgives me. He has promised me that he will take care of me in this life and in the next and although I know what is best for me and I am hungry for fill in the blank, I will trust in his provision and I will have faith in what he says is true, not what I think is true. What do I mean faith? Here's a good definition of faith. Faith leans on Jesus and Jesus alone and having the level of confidence and assurance in who Jesus is and what he says is true. And, re, and the results in us acting, choosing, behaving, or living differently than we would otherwise would. My question this morning is, do you believe in God's goodness? Sometimes I don't. And that's the human reasoning that approaches on me and I make bad decisions, right? <clears throat> I was on Young Life staff for 10 years or so and we took wilderness trips, which we go up to Colorado with about 10 high school kids. And we take them up and um, backpack them in the mountains for five nights and six days and go about 30, 40 miles up there. And I'm talking high school kids who are generally out of shape. We'd give them no deodorant, one change of underwear, 
And that was it. No, no watches, nothing. And it's, it's, a, it's a push. I did it four times, and it's, you know, it, was, it was tough, no doubt about it. There's many times I'm walking up there and going, what am I doing? This is stupid. If you guys backpack, you're crazy. I don't know what, what it is. That and runners. If you're a runner, I don't know what's in you. You're just messed up because there's no fun in running. It's just brutal, right? And I kept doing that and doing that. And so um, we were up there on a summer trip with my family. We were staying in some cabins up there. And the kids would come down from the mountains. They would all take showers so they weren't stinky anymore. they take showers and they come in for a big say-so. And I'll never forget this moment for the rest of my life. So kids get up and say what they learned on the mountain. The kid would say, oh, I thought that God really helped me through this. And I, was, I didn't think I could make this. But with all you together, we made it together. And through God's help, we made it together. Yada, yada, yada. Kept you know, going on. Then this one girl from Memorial High School, right down the street, she stood up and she said, you know what I learned? I learned that God is good. I started just tearing up, right? I don't know what her religious baggage was or what her life baggage was, but she stood up in the midst of that. She didn't say, thanks for friends for helping me, you know, thanks to my leaders for getting me through. She said, I just learned that that God is good. Wow. The second temptation that Jesus went through. <clears throat> then the devil took him in the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command the angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Here's, here's Satan's temptation. If you're the son of God, Stop there. Isn't that our temptation? Did God really say? God can't expect you to whatever. Did he really say that? I know that you read the Bible and I know you go to church, but look at yourself. You're starving and God does not love you and he won't provide for you. If he's your father, he's not a very good one because you're starving to death. You're, you're not getting what you want in your marriages, in your relationships, in your finances, in your sexuality, in your work. You're not getting what you want. So he keeps tempting Jesus. He says, if you're the son of God and, and God cares for you, he puts his finger in his chest and he says, prove it. Come on, Jesus. Prove it. Intentionally jump. If you're the son of God, angels are going to protect you. You don't have to worry about it. We'll know you're the son of God, and we'll go on from there. But prove it. Now, my, my Sunday school class is going to get upset with me because I use this illustration all the time. It's my favorite illustration by far that I've created. Hang in there. It's this one. Isn't that our temptation? Look, you're starving to death. Go ahead. You're a Christian. Jump. Sign the papers. Send that next text message. Let your anger pour out on whoever needs to pour out on. They deserve it. Don't even try to, try to reconcile relationships. It's not worth it. It's not your fault. And you know what? Here's the big one. If you're a Christian, God will forgive you. You know what's best for you. You're suffering, you're hurting, but look, it's really, really good down there. Just jump, you'll feel better. Don't worry about it, the kids will get over it, they're, they're resilient, just, just jump. Jump, it's better. 
God's going to forgive you anyway. Satan is mis- misquoting Jesus, uh, the Bible, and you don't want to do that to Jesus, for sure. Because he is quoting out of Psalm 91, 11 through 12. I think I have a slide of this. He says this. He who dwells, <clears throat> I'm sorry, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you on all your ways. On their hands he will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. What the problem is, and Satan is really good at doing this, he takes it out of context and he neglects the greater context. Right above there, Psalm 91, 1 through, two, 1 through 2 says this, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. The psalm is a promise for faithful people, including Jesus, that if we dwell in the shelter of the Most High, if we dwell in his shadow and under his wings, he will take care of us. Jesus' response, hey, Satan, why should I do that? I already know that God has promised me. You want me to doubt God like the Jews did back in the desert? It's not going to happen. You're misapplying the scriptures. You're not to put the Lord your God to the test. And I believe what he says is true. I will stay in the shadow of my father's wings. I'm going to stay in his shadow and not listen to you. The third temptation. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. Hey, Satan says, Jesus, you know what? I will give you everything you've ever been promised and you don't have to suffer. I'll give it all to you. Just worship me. Just jump. You don't have to suffer. It'll be okay. I had an aha moment reading through the Sermon on the Mount. Um, it's one of those things you read over and over again, and it just kind of strikes you. At the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, he says this. Uh, I'm sorry, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, when he's ascended to heaven, he says this. All authority has been given to who? Me. Not you, Satan. It's been given to me. Just kind of went, Wow. So our temptation is this, uh, we're lonely in our marriages, this is going to fulfill you without him or without her. You're so angry, you're so depressed, this is going to numb you. Young ladies that don't have a lot of students here today, I'm hurting in school, nobody loves me, I feel unappreciated, and some boy walks along and says, Hey, I love you. And you give yourself away. Because you're empty inside. You're not trusting what God says is true. That God will take care of our lives. Here's the deal. Um, Do we really believe that God is who he says he is and that he has the power to keep the promises he has made to you and I? Do we really believe that? I mean, we say it's true as believers. We kind of go, yeah, I believe Jesus, and I have faith in Jesus and all those things. And we'll say that to you. If I was counseling you, I'd say, yeah, trust in Jesus. Do I really believe that's true? It's true for you, but it's not that true for me. I could preach it all day long, but I've got to own that. Jesus had faith in his Father, and the angels attended him. And God took care of him, and God will take care of you. Jesus says that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He becomes the blood sacrifice in Genesis 3.15 promise and provides that guilt and shame offering for you and I. 
So what I want to do is kind of read a couple of scriptures here just real quick before we close out. Just let these roll over your, your mind and think about these as I read them. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever should believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory, glory of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, right, you're listening to what God says is true, and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on a rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against the house, and yet it did not fall. For it had been founded on a rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act upon them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against the house and it fell and it was great when it fell. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Were amazed at his teaching. They never heard this before. God never promised us a storm-free life, but he promised us a storm-proof life. The storm's going to come. He promises to be with us. Let me, let me kind of land the plane and close out here a little bit and uh, share some things with you. If I said some words to you based upon what you learned in your value system, what would you think about? If I said God, if I said marriage, if I said sexuality, if I said finances, love, friendship, truth, you would all have and be able to explain to me what your value system defined that is. Here's the question I want to ask you this morning as we close up. What if we're wrong? What if we're wrong about those things and our concepts of those things and they're based upon our human reasoning versus what God says is true? Let me ask you this. What do you have your, your fists so clenched around that you won't let go of? Because your human reasoning says, I'm going to hold on to this and this is mine. I don't care what God says is true. The truth of the matter is this. The scripture, God's word, everything, all these emotions, feelings, traditions are subjected to what God says is true, not what we say is true. We have to be people who know what God says is true in our lives because we might be wrong. So uh, let me, Henry now wrote a book he called With Open Hands, and he says this, he explains why he named the book this title, because he comes to life in areas in our lives. We come to it with clenched fish. He says we can't truly begin to honestly pray until we unclench our fist and say, God, I'm scared. I don't know what you're going to do, but I'm going to trust you. The biggest obstacle to you and I doing what God telling us, uh, the biggest obstacle to you doing what God is telling you to do is not because you're unclear what God is telling you. It's because you're, you fear of what might happen if you unclench your fist and let go. And your fear is greater than you, the fact that you trust God and he will keep his promise to you. So I'm going to do this. I'm going to ask, we're going to close in a song here. Henry Nouwen, um, in this book, he, he finishes with the prayer. Y'all can go ahead. And it says this, Dear God, I'm so afraid to open my clenched fist. Who will I be when I have nothing to hold on to? Who will I be when I stand before you with empty hands? Please help me to gradually open my hands and to discover I am the, what I owe, but what you want to give me. 
And what you want to give me is love, unconditional and everlasting love. I want to close together singing a song, that old traditional hymn. Um, so you guys can get that started. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, and this hymn is um, one we all heard before. I surrender all. Stay in your seats. We're going to lead you in, in. Oh, you don't have the keyboard on? Oh, keyboard's not on, Jamon. So I need some help there. <laughs> Sorry. Technical difficulties. All right. Here we go. Um, I just want you to kind of sing it with us. I surrender all. I surrender all. All to Jesus. It's still not working. We got problems. There it goes. Um, all to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him in his presence. David, let's sing together with him. All to Jesus I surrender all to him I freely give. I around saying, I know what's best for me. God, you don't know what's best for me. We can't sing that, that hymn, I surrender some things. I surrender some things. All I surrender some things to you. He wants all of us. He says, do you trust me in my goodness? Do you trust who I am? Or are you going to trust your human reasoning to provide for you? That's the question we got to walk away from here. Is God good? Is he going to take care of you? Do you believe what he says is true in your life? So in closing, I'm going to do this. I'm going to pray this prayer that Henry Nouwen wrote over us together and we'll be dismissed. Let's pray. Dear God, I'm, I'm so afraid to open my clenched fist. Who will I be when I have nothing to hold on to? Who will I be when I stand before you with empty hands? Please help me to gradually open my hands and discover I am not what I own, but what you want to give me. And what you want to give me is love, unconditional love, everlasting love. Lord, I surrender all. Father, we thank you for your love this morning. Help us to remember the human reasoning will get us nowhere but trusting in your word. 
Thank you for this time and worship this morning. May we leave from here different people, changed people, because of what you said is true, not what our minds or tradition or evaluation or emotions or feelings say is true. It's what you say is true. And so in that we trust that you will do everything you said you're going to do for us, that you will keep your promises to us. And on that, we lean into because we love you and you love us and became that blood sacrifice for our guilt and for our shame. It's not about our works and about our efforts. It's about what you have done for us. We thank you for your love. We thank you for Jesus Christ, our God. It's in your name we do pray. Amen.